taking us a little bit to get started today. We're limping into the end of a very long week. It's a three-day weekend, though, so maybe we'll be fully energized when we return on Tuesday. We will not have an episode on Monday. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn with a full house. Laura Johnston, Leila Tassi, Lisa Garvin. It's Friday. Yeah, I don't think we're limping. I think we're slap happy at this point. <laughs> well, I hope that we don't have slap happy discussions because that could be weird. Let's go. What's next now that the Ohio Supreme Court has ordered Governor Mike DeWine and other elected state leaders to redraw the legislative maps without gerrymandering in 10 days? I guess, Laura, it's now nine days. Yeah, exactly. We've we've crossed off one day on the ticking clock. The officials spent Thursday huddling over some of the key issues. And actually, it's not just limited to 10 days. I know we asked this question yesterday, but because the 10th day falls on a Saturday, January 22nd, it likely will be extended to the following Monday, January 24th, since Ohio Supreme Court rules say deadlines cannot fall on the weekend or a legal holiday. So if the court approves a map on January 24th, that leaves legislative candidates just nine days to collect 50 valid signatures from the voters from their political party who live within their districts where they want to run. And that is challenging. I mean, it's only 50. I think it's doable. But Matt Huffman, a Senate president who created this mess on the Ohio Redistricting Commission, says it's not feasible. He says they don't know what the districts are. And so uh, some people in the legislature say they want to pass legislation to allow candidates who are gathering signatures from qualified voters in the old district to not be disqualified. So that's yeah, one. Which, but yeah. that that actually is ridiculous. I mean, you should have to get the signatures from the electors. They could just move the deadline. I mean, right. That's the easy thing to do. I, I mean, at this point, I think they can do. I think everything is a question of what they can do and yeah. how they could do it. Here's the other thing. They could do this map today. This is Correct. hard. Mm -hmm. They have a computer program, put in the ratio, boom, adjust a few lines, work together in collaboration, get it done now, and then you don't have that tight deadline. Well, that's true. There is a question I didn't realize was a question, though, and that's who's going to be sitting on the seven-member body. Mm -hmm. I thought it would automatically be the same, and it might be, but under the state constitution, the redistricting commission automatically dissolves four weeks after the passage of the congressional map. Now, Governor DeWine signed that into November. Obviously, we've got the the, the whole lawsuit that is we're talking about, but this means the commission has to reconvene and that includes picking new representatives. Three members what, are. Let me ask you though. Yeah. Why does it, why do the, when the, the Supreme court order says we order you to reconvene, why can't they interpret that as that means the seven people who were involved in this the first time need to get together again? I, I don't know the answer to that. I know that they, they say that they have to constitute this body. And so I think you could make that argument. Now, do I want to make an argument that Cup and Huffman should be in this commission again? No. Like, I feel like we should give somebody else a try because each caucus gets to pick somebody to join Frank LaRose, Mike DeWine, and Auditor Keith Faber. So the Democrats in the Senate have already picked Vernon Sykes again. He's the Akron Democrat who's co-chaired the first iteration. Um, the other caucuses have not yet announced their picks, although in the past, and I, I should have realized this, but Huffman, Cup, they picked themselves, as did Amelia Sykes, who gave up her leadership position last month. So it wasn't just, you know, coincidence that these guys are the ones that ended up picking 
the district. Wow, and being the greatest thing that could happen is if those guys were not involved. Yes, they were bums. They they intentionally and in sinister fashion undermined and corrupted the whole process. So if their their group threw them out of it and said, "The hell with you guys. Let's get some people in good faith," that would be great. But even if they come back. They're under court order to do it right. They've been given very specific ratio to hit. And and you got to think that Mike DeWine, uh, Frank LaRose and Keith Faber are going to be saying, hey, guys, we're not going to screw this up again. We're all running for reelection this year. Absolutely. And this is their legacy. I mean, do you want to go down in history as the guy who really didn't do anything, who just said, yeah, this is wrong, but I'm going to pass it anyway, because that's where we stand. And I, I don't think that anybody wants that to be their epitaph. Hey, you know what yeah, we should just... do, Chris? We should what? put a countdown on Cleveland.com's homepage. <laughs> we should. Isn't that a good idea? And so that yeah, every know. person who comes to Cleveland.com is greeted by that. And then if they're not aware of, you know how we always talk about, why aren't people paying attention to this? There it is, the countdown to the, 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 to the redistricting well, maps. I got to tell you, they were paying attention yesterday. We had a big <laughs> bump in people listening to the podcast because I think this was the only place People were actually talking about it the way we talk about it. A lot of engagement with the story online. I was disappointed, Laura. I don't think we asked the question about whether a contempt of court uh, ruling, if they fail to do it, is part of this. I mean, they're now under a court order to do right. something in 10 days. So far, they've defied everything they've ever had to do. And if they didn't complete it in 10 days, we had we had some discussion of, well, probably go to federal court and it's a constitutional crisis but I would think, too, that the Supreme Court could hold them in contempt and say, go to a jail cell and get it done then. You'll get out when you produce a map. Uh, but we I didn't mean, really ask. I, I think that this is an unknown commodity at this point. But you're right. If they don't convene, and we've seen a lot of indications that obviously the Republicans don't want to follow the rules on this, but instead they appeal this to the Supreme Court. We're going to have a huge mess because we have this deadline to be, to start the elections for the primaries in May. So it's going to be a good, a big mess. The court is not allowed to draw their own maps. I mean, I honestly would like to just give it to Maureen O'Connor and be like, hey, can you come up with some maps for us? So I feel like you're a very reasonable person. Um, Assuming they do work in good faith, once they approve a map, all the parties in the case, including the groups that sued, would have three days to note their objections, and then the court would decide whether the new map is constitutional. So it's also entirely possible that this commission is reconstituted, comes back with a, with a map that still isn't good enough, and the court could send it back again. Well, even though it's a remote possibility, I'm enjoying the imagery of those seven guys in orange <laughs> jumpsuits in a jail cell pouring over a map. Wouldn't that be a great photo for history? <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. Which of the world's microchip makers is it that will be building what could be a $100 billion factory in Ohio? Lisa, Andrew Tobias has been all over this story, and nobody involved wanted him to have this, not the people at Jobs Ohio, not the governor's office. But Andrew Tobias is a reporter who will not be denied, and he reported who it is. Who is it? Yeah, thanks to Andrew's dogged reporting on this, sources have told him that California-based Intel will be the one building what they call a megafab chip-making complex in New Albany, which is just a little bit uh, east of Columbus. Um, nobody else is talking. Uh, DeWine and state officials are still mum on the on the whole issue, on all the details. But Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer did uh, 
file a public records request for a letter that was sent from Intel to state officials that chose Ohio as this new campus. And that letter was sent back in late December. So hopefully we can get that resolved. Intel. Well, let me let me stop you. Let me stop you there. I mean, the thing people should know is that's automatically a public record that should have been Mm. produced the minute Andrew sent his letter. And we asked the governor about this when we talked to him on Tuesday and he goes, well, I've turned that over to the lawyers. And he smiled and said, you know, well, I mean, they're planning to not satisfy the records law to delay us until they're ready to make the announcement, probably in a couple of weeks. That's not right. You're supposed to turn over the public record. But thanks to Andrew's reporting, he didn't need the damn letter. He, he got enough <laughs> sources to tell him it's intel. But shame on the governor's office for playing games with the records law. Right. I mean, this is a big story. And, and I'm so glad that we were the ones to break it. So what happens here, um, there, was a, there was an annexation deal between New Albany and unincorporated Licking County to annex 3,600 acres for this project. Project. Intel CEO Patrick Gelsinger is talking a little bit. He says that he envisions what he calls a little city. So this complex would be cost $100 billion to build. It would employ 10,000 workers at the plant itself, but they feel like it might support up to 100,000 more related jobs. And one of the uh, requirements for this uh, new campus from Intel is they wanted proximity to a university. Well, they have that in Ohio State University, which has a top-ranked science and engineering program. Uh, They are awaiting details on the uh, U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, which is calling for federal subsidies for domestic chip production in this massive wave of reshoring. That passed the Senate last summer, but it's still stalled in the House. So once those details are worked out, we'll we'll know a little bit more. But yeah, this is very exciting news. Yeah, it's going to be the biggest economic development project in the history of the state, probably, and very much a, a game changer for the economy. I mean, this this could not be better news. Well, the only way it could be better news is if it were in Northeast Ohio, <laughs> uh, but we don't really have the land for it. So great job, Andrew Tobias, Intel. I, we're hoping that we can send the crew out to do a tour of one of their factories to see just what goes on inside. Uh, I doubt they'll allow that any time before they make the official announcement. But by the time they make the official announcement, it's going to be old news because of Andrew Tobias. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Does the Lead Safe Coalition seeking to eradicate lead paint from Cleveland homes finally have the money it long has said it needs to get the job done? Layla, they got a big bundle of cash this week. Yeah, this was a pretty big development yesterday. Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb, City Council President Blaine Griffin, and Cleveland Clinic CEO Tom Holovic announced a combined $67 million contribution to the Lead Safe Cleveland Coalition for for lead remediation in, in Cleveland homes. That really blasts that agency past its goal of raising $99.4 million in a five-year period. The clinic, for its part, will be donating $50 million. Last fall, they pledged $2.5 million. So obviously, they're upping their game here and contributing to solving this crisis. The city will give $17 million over a two-year period, and that's going to come out of the city's American Rescue Plan allotment. So city council is going to have to approve that expenditure. Before this announcement Thursday, the Lead, the Lead Safe Cleveland Coalition had raised $47.3 million toward the cause. So really one giant step toward toward uh, remediation here. The money's going to to provide landlords with loans, grants, and and other incentives to get their properties certified as lead safe. Uh, the coalition 
also works to train more people to inspect and remediate lead in homes. It runs the Lead Safe Resource Center, which is kind of the education arm, uh, educating families and landlords and homeowners about the remediation process. And the focus is going to be on homes built before 1978 and that era before lead paint was barred from residential use. That's that's 90% of Cleveland's housing stock. And, and we know how irreversibly damaging lead poisoning can be, especially for kids and their, their developing brains and bodies. So this was a big announcement. Uh, you know, another piece of this puzzle is that Mayor Bibb announced the creation of a lead czar position in his administration, which will really coordinate among city departments to tackle this issue. What's what what is so transforming here is that the number of generations in Cleveland that have had their brains damaged by lead, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. which studies show that leads to lives of crime or being on public assistance and being unable to thrive all because of the environment they grew up in. And if if we can actually get this done, the 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 way children will be able to thrive that they haven't been able to is astounding. And the, the benefit to society will be a whole bunch more people that are thriving, contributing, mm-hmm. being part of it, less crime, less public assistance. And it's just something that's so important. So the faster it gets done, the better big day in Ohio or in Northeast Ohio to get that done. Mm-hmm. You're listening to today in Ohio. We keep hearing the Omicron variant surge of the past month is about to wane, but right now it's still slamming us. How is President Joe Biden trying to help here in Ohio and really across the nation? Laura? So Biden on Thursday announced that the government's acquiring a billion home coronavirus test kits for free public distribution is and is sending 120 military medical personnel to respond to the virus. That includes 20 sent to the Cleveland Clinic starting next week. They're also going to spots in Michigan, New York, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. So Ohio Department of Health Director Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff also spoke about this yesterday. He said Air Force nurses, physicians, and respiratory therapists are coming and that the clinic got these through help with the Ohio Department of Health. And now that department's working with FEMA again to try to get other hospitals more kinds, more military help. Yeah, it's a it's a big deal to get more people at the clinic, because as we know, the staff there has been hit pretty hard. And so just having people on hand to treat all the people in the hospital has been difficult. It does seem like we're on the cusp of this going down, although the numbers in Ohio have, have remained very steady. It's been surprising that we've been between that 19,500 and 20,500 number for about two weeks, but everybody keeps saying it's about to drop. Yeah. And I hope it starts to drop, right? But obviously hospitals need help and hospitalizations lag the case numbers. But since Thanksgiving, more than 800 military and other federal emergency personnel have been deployed to 24 states and that National Guard members have been called up in 49 states. I do not know the one state that hasn't needed help with their COVID response. But obviously, this is a national problem that I don't really think we saw coming. Yeah, to be people are really clamoring to get those test kits. So I'm, I'm yeah, sure people... they've got 500 million ready to send now and, and more on order. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What are Northeast Ohio employers and healthcare facilities saying about the U.S. Supreme Court 
ruling Thursday that Joe Biden's vaccine mandate for large employers is illegal. Lisa, I don't think it was a surprise they ruled the way they did based on the questions they asked when they heard the case. But it does have ramifications, especially for healthcare workers. It does. Uh, the The Supreme Court ruling put a hold on the vac- vaccine mandate for employers of a hundred or more people. They're leaving it to the lower courts to decide the legality of this mandate. But the mandate for health workers at facilities that receive federal funding, like Medicare and Medicaid, that mandate still remains, and that affects about seventy-six thousand healthcare facilities across the across the uh, U.S. Our Attorney General David Yo said. He applauded the ruling. He said it protects state and individual rights to pursue their best solutions. Also applauding it was Ohio Chamber of Commerce CEO Steve Stivers. He says businesses are in the best position to set their COVID policies. Now, we do know uh, the hospital systems in our area, Metro Health Summit and Stokes uh, Veterans Administration's hospitals, have required employee vaccinations throughout. I mean, for the last several months, university hospitals and Cleveland Clinic did not require them. However, because this mandate that uh, that makes you know healthcare facilities have vaccine mandates, that means UH and Cleveland Clinic are going to have to reconsider. We talked to Cleveland Clinic. They said they're reviewing the ruling. They plan to comply with the federal requirements, but did say that 85% of their workforce is vaccinated. We have reached out to university hospitals for comment and haven't heard back from them. But here's a question that I have. I would think that this would be a big liability issue for large employers that don't impose a vaccine mandate. I do know that there are kind of scattered reports of people filing lawsuits saying that they got COVID from their workplace. So I wonder if this opens them up to liability. I don't know how you prove that, though. Omicron is right. so hyper contagious that how you can say I got it at work or not. And that was part of the Supreme Court's logic here is that that you're in a lot of places, not just the workplace where it's spreading. Why put the onus on employers to keep one small place safe when all these other places aren't as safe? I also know it was going to be a nightmare for employers to try to keep track of because it's not just did you get vaccinated? It it becomes did you get the booster? And if we have to get another booster, when did you get that booster? And and getting the test results and things. I, it'll be interesting to see. Biden did say, okay, I get it, but I'm calling on employers do this for the safety of your employees to see how many comply with that. Yeah, I, I would think that you know they would want to. Well, you talked about the liability question, but they wouldn't want to, you know, affect their workforce. So many, you know, places are having to shorten their hours and do other things because so many of their people are sick. I would think they would want to avoid that. Yeah, I I, I agree. It's it, I think a lot of them still don't have people back in the office, but we'll see what the results are. It's today in Ohio. Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb announced a bunch of additional high-level appointments this week. Layla, he's filling out his cabinet slowly, day by day. Who are the latest to join? Yeah, another round of interesting appointments. And and I might or might not be pronouncing some of these names correctly because most of these people are completely new to us. (laughs) So um, (laughs) first, there's Chief Financial Officer Ahmed Abanama, who for the last six years worked with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, most recently as director in the SEC's Office of Credit Ratings. Before that, he was in the SEC's Office of Municipal Securities, where he helped develop 
their regulation and oversight of the municipal securities market. He'll be advising Bib on the city budget and council Bib on ways to promote sustained and equitable economic growth across the city. And then there's right, stop yeah. there, stop there, stop there, because we should point out Justin Bibb is required by the charter to put in this year's budget. Uh, February 1st. first. <laughs> so Sharon Dumas, Frank Jackson's longtime finance chief, who was a master of the budget, left him a great plan. But he has a limited number of days to add or subtract whatever he wants to do. This guy that he's put in seems like he certainly has the bona fides to right. help quickly analyze this budget which is how many pages like 450 pages right yeah and 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 put in whatever justin bibb wants as his initiatives and things so it seems like a good one seems like a guy with a lot of so as soon as he figures out uh, where his desk is at city hall he needs to start (laughs) on a 500 page budget (laughs) (laughs) so then there's the chief operating officer pick bonnie tewin i think that's how the name is pronounced cuyahoga county's former public works director whose most recent job was director of transportation and municipal engineering at osborne engineering before that she was the deputy director for the the Ohio Department of Transportation. She'll be overseeing public works for Bib. Then another one though yeah. that we've had experience with that that it seems like a lot of bona fides. I mean, respected in her field, and so that seems like another good get for the mayor. It does. I, I want to chime in that I worked with her when I covered the county, and always always found her really reasonable and responsive. Very good. Responsive. That's a key. Oh my god. Thing here. <laughs> she answered <laughs> questions. Lord. Yes. Yes. Then there's the the cho- choice for chief of integrated development, Jeff Epstein. Unfortunately, <laughs> the name yeah. a, a name that we've heard in the news, but that not that Jeff Epstein, who until now <laughs> was the executive director of the community development organization serving the Midtown neighborhood between downtown University Circle. In the seven years that he was there, that neighborhood has seen two hundred thirty million dollars in development. So more bona fides uh, in this guy's background. He'll be tasked with achieving inclusive economic growth across the city by working with other government leaders and coordinating development work across city departments. So, well, yeah. seven years in Midtown clearly gives him the experience necessary to have a citywide scan. I mean, he's been immersed in it. That's been, it's, it's, it's still a work in progress. Midtown is not completely back, but it has had remarkable progress during his tenure. It's yeah. kind of the, one of the it neighborhoods right now. If we ever sold our building, I think we'd make a serious thought about moving there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So clearly another guy who comes in knows what he's doing. That's right. And then there's the director of building and housing, Sally Martin, previously South Euclid's housing director and a really influential housing advocate in the Cleveland area. She has backed pay to stay legislation aimed at preventing evictions and the source of income discrimination that bars landlords from denying rentals to federal housing voucher recipients. When I was a columnist writing about fair housing issues, I got to know Sally Martin quite well, in my opinion. This was about as strong a choice as Bib could make. She is fierce on the issue of housing equity. So I am very excited that she that she made this cut. And, the, All right, and well, well, then there's director of community development, Alyssa Hernandez, who most recently served as bureau chief within the house, the, the office of long term resiliency at the Florida Department of Economic Opportunity. There she managed several HUD CDBG disaster recovery and mitigation programs with a combined budget of nearly two billion dollars. So another very strong choice. So there you have it. What do you make of that yeah. cabinet so far? <laughs> I, look, these these appointments are very strong. I mean, it's, it seems like he's he's and what's what's great about it is 
these people want to work at City Hall. Mm-hmm. These are very qualified people that want to work at City Hall. I mean, when I was covering City Hall, we actually had at one point a finance director whose previous job had been literally running an ice cream shop. So this is a step up. This is yeah. well done, yeah, Justin right. Bibb, and you know, he's I, attracting I, talent. A couple of weeks ago when we were talking about this, I said on the podcast that I thought he could probably do well to appoint some folks who know how City Hall operates. We've talked about that a lot, but I think I've revised my thinking on that. I feel maybe if you, if you wipe the slate clean, you're redefining how City Hall operates. Yeah, you still uh, you still have to know how where the keys are. I, I don't know. I think I'm a little bit surprised he doesn't have somebody that knows the scheme. I kept thinking he was going to appoint Zach Reed to something. He was a big supporter of his, and Zach at least knows how City Hall runs because mm-hmm. he was a councilman for 16 years. We'll see. He's not finished yet. There's still positions to fill. Uh, the, the day's not over. It's today in Ohio. Did the people trying to legalize marijuana in Ohio come up with the signatures they needed on petitions after a huge percentage on their original petitions were rejected as invalid? We joked, Layla, uh, Lisa, that the the people who were signing must have been stoned because so many of them weren't registered to vote. Do they have a better chance this time? Well, it remains to be seen because none of these signatures have been certified yet. Of course, their last run, they they had 74,000 signatures that they had to throw out as invalid. And that left them 13,062 short to get this uh, initiated statute before lawmakers to legalize recreational marijuana, the group being the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana-Like Alcohol. They submitted 29,918 new signatures for this statute. Like I said, they need 13,062 to get this before lawmakers. But, you know, like I said, these have to be certified. Of course, you want to get at least twice as many as you need because of, you know, invalidation issues. They really prefer what happens with an initiated statute. The lawmakers have four months to decide whether to make it a law or not. If they don't, it then goes on the ballot in November for voters to decide. But CRMLA spokespeople said they prefer that lawmakers pass this bill instead of having it go on the ballot. So we'll see how that goes. Well, that's what this is all about. If they get the signatures, it really pressures the legislature to to take care of it so that it doesn't become something that draws a lot of people from the left to the polls in November, which is what the organizers want. They don't really want to do the, the ballot question. They'd rather the lawmakers just pass the thing. We'll see if they have enough to get it there. It's today in Ohio. Why is Cleveland State University under pressure to change the name of its Cleveland Marshall College of Law? Layla, this is part of the continuing analysis of of past people that have been put on pedestals. Yeah, it's and it's because the school is named after U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall, who was a slave owner most of his life, and that's just reprehensible. The college has been considering a possible name change since summer of 2020, when an online petition from a Cleveland lawyer, Hannah Cassis, called on on the law school and two others in Chicago and Atlanta to remove the name. But now the college is just dragging its feet and a group of law students are kind of fed up with it. They're pressing the board into action. A year and a half ago, the college put this committee together to weigh out the issue and and held a bunch of public forums on the topic. They also assembled a document with arguments on both sides. 
Dean Lee Fisher in a statement to Cleveland.com said a potential renaming is, quote, a consequential decision that requires careful study and a thoughtful, inclusive process that considers different viewpoints. And he said that, you know, you know, that process has modeled what we teach our law students to listen and learn and to withhold judgment until we have had a chance to evaluate what what we've heard. But the people pushing for the name change say that would be all well and good if the two sides of the debate were on equal moral footing. The argument in favor of the nostalgia of a school's name is not equal and equivalent to the moral argument against naming the institution after a slaver. And I totally agree with that perspective. I think they should, I mean, they they should move quickly and and, uh, put this to rest. Plus, well, Joe also, Marshall, he doesn't even have a connection to Cleveland. I, I don't quite understand why why it, it's it's uh, you know so controversial to change the name. <laughs> and, it, and it's a clunky name. I mean, wh- why don't you get a, a name that actually has a ring to it? And is and Cleveland Marshall College of Law doesn't just roll off the tongue. Mm-hmm, it was a stupid mm-hmm. name to begin with. So I, I'm betting they'll get rid of that name, and it'll be interesting to see what they come up with to um, to replace mm-hmm. it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. It's one of our most popular stories this week. Who does our pop culture writer, Troy Smith, say should never have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Laura, he published this story earlier in the week, man, and it just rocketed up the charts. He's been invited to talk on radio programs about it. Everybody wants to debate about this. So what did he say? Yeah, like this is a really cool idea, basically going through year by year the classes of the Hall of Fame. And it's the opposite of the snub list. Basically, it's saying we want to make this list as elitist as possible. So we're going to knock off the people who don't make our criteria. And it's not just Troy going through and being like, I don't like this guy. They gave points for every album featured on Rolling Stone's 500 greatest albums of all time or 500 greatest songs of all time and a lot of other rankings that came from other places to try to make this as scientific as possible but what ends up the folks getting cut off this list are people that you're like wait these are really really big names Uh, people like the four seasons richie valens bob seeger george harrison john mellencamp was a big shock to me alice cooper linda ronstadt journey carol king i mean there are some years that Troy doesn't knock anybody off like the first year in 1986. And then there are years that like, no, almost no one makes it through. <laughs> like I've never met anybody that has more knowledge of music, popular music than Troy Smith. I mean, he knows more about the music I grew up with than I do. And he wasn't even born yet. Um, so when he does something like this, he's methodical, he's careful and he does it to provoke debate. It's a yes. good debate to say, should Journey be in or not? You know, the minute you ask that question, you're going to get passionate <laughs> responses. Layla, should Journey be in the Rock Hall? I'm not really a Journey fan, but, <laughs> but you know, it's well, good for karaoke. Does that Journey count? Fan. <laughs> Lisa Carol King, belong in the Rock Hall? Hell yes. I agree. Tapestry is one agree. of the biggest albums ever. I mean, come on. Yeah. I, I and, and what I can't believe he's bumping a Beatle. He's bumping right. George Harrison. It's like, whoa. Was that the biggest shock to you, Chris? That's royalty, man. You don't oh, mess with the Beatles. I'm not a Beatle. Anyway, I, I really thought John Mellencamp was a big shock to me. I mean, I love Mellencamp. But, and the Jackson 5. I mean, you're like, wait. So, and, and part of it is just where the rankings fall and and where in people's careers and how many albums they put out. But it's it's fascinating. I am not even like a Rock Hall fan, but I, I was just reading all the way through Detroit's story just to hear, you know, see what he said and, and, and 
yeah, it's jaw dropping. Some of them. It's it's great stuff. Great fun. A salute to Troy. Check it out on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and that's it for another week of roundups of the news. Like I said earlier, we will not be here Monday. We have the holiday. We'll be back on Tuesday. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. And thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast. Thank you.